Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the healthcare logjam. So, Richard, as you and I are speaking today, there, there's still a lot of confusion around what's going to happen with healthcare reform. President Trump and the Republicans in Congress, they're all pretty uniform in calling for repealing Obamacare and replacing it with an alternative law. A lot of disagreement, though, over what that looks like. So what I want to do is have you start at the conceptual level. President Trump has said on a couple of occasions that one of the things his replacement is going to do is offer – I'm quoting him here – insurance for everybody. So we don't know any real details. There's no plan to critique there. But I just want to think about this as an agenda-setting exercise. Is insurance for everybody the goal of the right kind of health care reform? And if not, what should you be looking for? Well, I mean what happens is this is a case of typical Trumpian hyperbole with respect to what is a very difficult issue. At one time, there were about 44 million, 47 million people who in fact had no form of insurance and the Obamacare system said what we're trying to do is to find a way to bring them all into it. And what happened is that they were essentially unable to do that even though they made some inroads and this is what they did is first of all, they bumped a lot of people off of perfectly happy health care plans and then they put a bunch of people on Medicaid uh, which did not work all that well and then uh, they put up these exchanges um, which turns out at the individual levels to have lots of rigidities and mistake, and you still have a very large fraction of people who are underinsured or have got no coverage at all. To try and bring them into this particular system, since these are the most difficult people to deal with probably in any case, could easily be a small fortune, and it's not at all clear how you would do it. And if you're trying to basically do this, it's more of a nationalized health system than the Obamacare that you had, so it's absolutely a non-star in terms of its ideal. And what happens is, of course, somebody like Trump doesn't know anything about the particular problem, doesn't understand what's worked with the system, doesn't know about either repeal or replacement or repair. And so you start making these large claims. And once you do that, the kinds of sensible reforms that will be available will have to be put to one side. And nobody but nobody will be able to come up with a plan that does the kinds of things that he wants at the kind of price that this nation collectively can afford. Um, in fact, what you really need is much more market liberalization. We could talk about that later rather than more mandates and subsidies. Richard, you and I don't spend a whole lot of time on this show talking about antitrust matters, but it is sort of relevant when we talk about the state of health care right now. You've had two big mergers. This is four of the five major health insurers in the country blocked within the last month or so by judges on antitrust grounds, one between Aetna and Humana, the other between Anthem and Cigna. And one of the criticisms that's been lodged here is that the economic logic of Obamacare rewards consolidation, yet our legal framework is not allowing it. So you're leaving the insurers in a bit of a, a catch-22. Is that how you see it? Well, there's certainly a lot of truth into that. Let's just go back to the beginning. Generally speaking, if you're in an unregulated market, the moment you start to increase concentration, you have to ask two questions. First, is this going to be a restraint on trade? The fewer players are essentially going to lead to higher prices because of the ability to extract monopoly profits. And on the other side, what you do is you have to ask whether or not there are going to be any efficiencies that come together, which would offset the monopoly gains. And generally speaking, that's a kind of an ad hoc inquiry. Uh, and the usual rule of thumb that you have 
have is you're willing to go from five to four, maybe going from four to three. You're not willing, I think, in general to go from five to three, uh, which is what's taking place in this case. So understand that antitrust principles, I think both of these mergers being between very large companies would be highly problematic. And the usual way of trying to get around this, which is I'll shuck off these operations, you get rid of those so that there's competition in some of the markets where we might have excess of concentration, won't work. Once you introduce the Obamacare, uh, the competition has been sharply limited, at least with respect to the individual mandate, because there's now minimum restrictions as to what it is that you can do in terms of things, and there's very little by way of kind of anything other than sort of price competition, which doesn't work very well in a market in which you have to be forced to take large shares of your customers. And so the name of this particular game is to reduce the cost of compliance, and when you try to reduce compliance costs, then the fact that you have a a very large customer base means that all of these regulations which are hitting you one after another can be spread out over a much larger number of people and so that paradoxically in this kind of a world it's probably more efficient to have a few firms regulated by a big government than by some. What makes it very difficult is that the individual mandate is only a part of what all of these companies do. And so if they merge in order to get economies in one area that may make sense, they're going to merge and get all sorts of um, economic rents in other areas where they don't have this particular problem. So although I've not looked at it closely, my bet is that understanded antitrust principles, uh, knocking down the two merges and separately are perfectly good situation. What's going to happen, of course, is that people are now going to withdraw from the individual markets. I believe that Humana announced that they were going to pull out of some of these markets, at least in 2018. And unless you completely repair the way in which the individual um, mandate markets are going to work, uh, you're going to have a real crisis. There'll be some areas in which there'll be virtually nobody who's willing to supply the coverage, and there'll be other areas in which there'll be only one provider. So you'll have the very kind of monopoly problem uh, that the merger guidelines are designed to protect against. That was going to be my next question, actually, because you're right. It's Humana. They've said they're going to pull out of the Obama care exchanges in 2018, and this is not this is new for them, but it's not new across the board. We've seen other providers doing this, and, and premiums going up in that market. And people are saying now, Richard, you've been saying for a long time, this is these are the death spirals, and we've been warning about these coming to fruition. You said a moment ago that this is basically sort of inevitable unless there's a major fix on this. What does that fix look like? How do you get sort of the individual healthcare market stood up in a healthy fashion? Well, what you do is you try to make the exchanges into exchanges in which the only thing the government does is to provide a platform in which sellers come with whatever wares they want to sell and buyers come with their cash and choose whatever they want. But this is not an exchange that you simply get into uh, like a stock exchange to display your wares on whatever terms you want. There are all sorts of preconditions about what you must show in order to get there and all sorts of things that you have to do. When you go through this list, it becomes absolutely clear that nobody can make a sensible living at it. So let me just mention one of the problems, and then we'll go through a couple. One of them is there's something known as a medical loss ratio, and the Solons in Washington have decided that it's a waste for any large company to spend any more than 15% of its revenues on what you would call administrative expenses. Nobody gives you a definition of administrative expenses, and paradoxically, one of the reasons why these plans have had trouble, so I've been told, is that the cost of recruiting customers to come into the system are treated as administrative expenses expenses. You don't have enough money to do that. And so you can't bring customers in to expand the base because you don't have the advertisement and the infrastructure in order to do so. If you relax that constraint, I think it would be quite wonderful. 
Uh, the second thing is you start looking at the kinds of things that require it, and you have all these fancy levels of metal, gold, platinum, silver. Uh, they need a little more brass in there, and what they have to do is to basically get rid of the minimum essential benefits that everybody has to provide and let folks figure out what they're willing to provide and let people choose what it is that they want. And it turns out that what most people want is not fancy coverages. They want something on the sort of the large size. They're willing to take routine expenses for themselves, and they don't want to have to pay for fancy things like alcoholism and so forth. And so the whole mismatch between the mandated list and what people want has driven a lot of people away from the plan. So what they're doing is they're giving you a market basket of goods, and half of them you want and half of them you don't want. The amount that you lose on the goods that you don't want exceeds the amount that you think you're going to gain on the ones that you do want. So the market implodes, and you have to be able to change that kind of thing. Then you also have to be able to give companies the power to specialize in certain niche markets to reject customers. Because what happens now is the moment people apply, they are automatically entitled. And if there's an overrun, you run some kind of a lottery to get them out. So companies cannot specialize in accordance with their expertise. And most importantly of all, there was an unholy deal in which what they did is they kept the national, the state markets rather, separate so that new entrants from outside the state could not come in. And the strongest way in which you can reduce all the costs is to let any national insurer through any avenue come into any state at any time that they want because it's free entry more than anything else which will drive down the cost of goods and give you a discovery process and you'll figure out what actually it is that people want. And so you can do all of this stuff. What will it look like? Well, you can't be sure, but one obvious model that has worked is the Indiana plan, which was put into place by Mitch Daniels and which, of course, Mike Pence is familiar with since they were both there. And that seems to have received fairly strong consumer, um, shall we say, acceptance. And if you have a plan like that that starts to work, which essentially gives you insurance coverage uh, benefits without telling you what you have to and have not to buy, uh, you're probably going to be better off than trying to dictate all of the particular items that go in the market basket. So there are ways in which you can do this. And I don't know whether you want to call this a repeal and a replacement was fundamentally different or whether it's just a major rework and modification. I don't care about the words. What you cannot do is to afford a system which everything breaks down and have a rerun of the transition of the sort that you had when they try to roll this thing out the first time in 2012-2013. One of the things that it seems progressives were counting on, although this was also cited as a council of despair by a lot of people on the right, was that big entitlement programs, once enacted, don't tend to go away. And, and now you, now that the stakes are real here, you are seeing more protests at the idea of repealing the law. So maybe that principle is reasserting itself a little bit. But there is still a sense that Obamacare has never quite planted roots the way you'd expect. Do you have any thoughts as to why that is, Richard? Well, first of all, what happens is most of the entitlement programs you're talking about are situations where the government is the direct payor, and they don't have this nettlesome problem of trying to get individual private firms to do things. So if this were some kind of a national health care plan in which the government were the direct provider of all the benefits, it would be a lot harder to dislodge it. Um, but when they did this particular thing as kind of a compromise, they actually thought that some of these companies could make money, and then they had provisions for allowing transfers to be made between the companies that turned out to be successful given their luck of the draw with respect to their enrolled population and the ones that were less successful. What the fellows never seem to understand is that 
all of these particular companies were in fact going to be unsuccessful in some rather fundamental way. And once that starts to happen, the whole thing starts to implode because transferring money from one losing company to another losing company doesn't get you any winners. So the Obama administration tried to figure out ways to take money from third-party sources and to put it in there, but this was blocked by the statute in its original design, and so that didn't work. It was essentially a complete failure to understand uh, the question that if you have lots of losing transactions put together under an unsatisfactory system, you cannot make up in volume what you lost on individual pieces. That's an old joke from the garment industry, uh, but it actually carries over to this case. And so everybody starts to pull out one way or another because nobody can see their way through to making money under all of the rigidities that were associated. So I think the best thing to do is to peel those things away, get yourself back to a real exchange in which the benefit is you have one-stop shopping instead of having to go every which way. I'll let people set their own benefits. Um, if they want to kind of have a standardized benefit package, the government can certainly identify any, but let any individual company just put up a sign saying, this is what we offer, this is what we don't, and then advertise like they do in everything else. We manage to have a competitive market in automobiles, and we don't require every country to have the same tint with respect to the roof. And this is exactly what you want to be able to do here. Have a place where people can get together and don't have the government stipulate terms because this is all coming out of uh, the Boston area, Cambridge, Harvard, and so forth. And these people are always folks who want to run the world from their own ivory perch. I'm more of a Chicago type on those things. I don't know what ought to be the appropriate level of cared and system design. But I think people who are full-time in the industry are going to be much better at doing that than I am. And those are the ones whom I think should compete on all the grounds that I've just mentioned, having to do with the type of services, the kinds of protections they give, the choice of panels for doctors, the nature of the deductibles and so forth, rather than doing what we do today, which is to mandate everything. And then what happens is patients lose the choices they really care about. Sometimes the deductibles are way too high, and sometimes they lose the choice of physicians um, whom they want, and those are the things that often people value the most. We've had suggestions this week from the Freedom Caucus in the House, which is the most sort of firmly conservative caucus of House members, that they're getting nervous about other Republicans, especially in the Senate, slow-walking repeal. So they're actually pushing to just take the law off the books and then work from there on getting a replacement put in place. Now, as I understand it, that's take the law off the books, but it would still be in effect until they come up with a replacement. Um, Richard, any insight on the, the sequence of events here? How important is the order in which reform is done? It's always critical. The Obamacare rollout was too much too soon, and God knows how many millions of people lost their coverage. And if you do this and you say, look, this thing is repealed as of December 1st, 2017, and then you get to that date and there's a filibuster by one group and there's an objection by another and you have nothing to put into place, it's a catastrophe. So I'm not one at this particular point, given where we are, who wants to start with repeal. What I want to do is to start with shucking away all of the constraints that you have on the individual mandates that make them non-competitive and then hope that the market will revive under those circumstances. I also think since we've never started really the employer mandate side of this thing, and that market seems to be working pretty well, that what we do is we say we're not going to do anything for employers. We're just going to let them do their business exactly the way they do today. 
my sense is that once you get the uncertainty out of the employer side, many employers will start to offer more coverage. That will start to reduce the amount of difficulty that we have under these circumstances. And you just don't want to get yourself into the position where everything is going to be mandated to everybody. One of the problems you have, of course, is that if you say you're required as an employer to give X, Y, and Z coverages to people who work more than 20 hours a week, you got a lot of 19-hour part-time employees, and you don't want to have that either. So there are many ways in which you can deregulate this market, which will jumpstart things. If you're going to try and do the Trump program, in effect, it's going to require more massive subsidies than you've ever had before, dealing with populations that you've never been able to control through this device. It doesn't work. If you want to get uninsured populations medical care, make it very clear that CityMD or any such company can put up a shelter or a sign, open up the doors, have people come in without appointments and get treatment for 10 or $15, and you'll empty out the emergency room. So deregulation, letting corporate practices to take place, that's what they ought to be concentrating on. And of course, the president is himself in some sense a naive populist. If something needs to be done, he's willing to provide it. Uh, But Superman is not going to land on his feet if he tries this kind of a gargantuan task. (laughs) Final question that I'll put to you. When you see a lot of these protesters against repeal or even listen to a lot of sort of similarly minded pundits, a lot of the time – their argument comes home to the idea that I think the way they would put it is healthcare is a right. It's a basic human right. How do you respond to that line of argument, Richard? Well, I mean, it's like having a magnet with one pole. Healthcare is a basic right, so nobody <laughs> has any correlative duties to provide it. And somebody will say, well, the correlative duty goes to the state, but the state is simply a placeholder for other individuals who are going to be taxed in ways that are going to be able to fund it. Uh, so the difficulty with all of these positive rights is that you can never get your financial accounts into balance because the people who are going to get something for nothing will always want to increase the taxes. Those who have to pay will want to resist. There'll be some kind of an intermediate solution, but the taxes will in fact reduce the overall levels of productivity. So you're going to have to pay for it in other ways, including fewer job opportunities. So generally speaking, anytime somebody tells you that you have a right to X, by which I mean a right to education, a right to health care, a right to housing and so forth, the answer is yes, if you get the correlative duty correctly. You have a right to go into a marketplace and to offer your hard-earned dollars to get the best service that you want, whether it's for housing, healthcare, education, or anything else, but you don't have the right to compel other people to pay for it at their particular expense. You still have to worry about a kind of a welfare system to back up this kind of arrangement, but it's going to be a lot smaller if you first get markets working fairly well and then use the welfare system to only pick up those cases where the low-cost ingenuities that you can create in markets aren't there. So this is exactly backwards. I've, I've often put this when I do it in my academic writing, saying the theme of all serious programs of positive rights is redistribution last. Never start with a redistributive scheme until you've exhausted all of the uh, removals of barriers to entry and exit into a market. And when you do that, you'll discover that the redistribution scheme is going to have much less pressure on it because there'll be many more people in the market. Just to give you one example, when we put all these mandates on individual health care policies at the state level, it essentially reduced, roughly speaking, 
the number of people who had private plans in 1980 was about 60%. And then you get 25 years later and it's down to 50%. That's close to 15 million people losing coverage. Why is it? Because you gave them stuff that they didn't want, so they couldn't get the stuff that they did want. And so you have to remember uh, that every time you use mandates of one kind or another in compulsion, it's not going to get you where you want to go. It's going to get you into the kind of crisis that we have right now um, with the failing Obamacare systems in the individual mandated market. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian, and you can find it by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can also follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.